All right, so uh, starting in chapter 10 of Judges, we have the story of two judges that get just a little bit of recognition. And all this happens after the uh, period of Abimelech. And so Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, After Abimelech, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, uh, became judge and began to deliver Israel. He was from Issachar and lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. Tola judged Israel 23 years, and when he died, he was buried in uh, Shamir. After him came Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They had 30 towns in Gilead, which are still called Jair's villages today. When Jair died, he was buried in Cainon. And so we just have these really short uh, description of Tola and Jair, just five verses. Uh, but still, we can learn a little bit about these guys. Um, Tola, the only thing that we can really discern from him uh, is his lineage, that he was the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, um, and that he was from Issachar uh, in the hill country of Ephraim. And so he was, uh, you know, had a, a place in Israel. He had a connection. You know, we've mentioned uh, some of the judges did not have a clan connection, but Tola does. And uh, Tola's name uh, means scarlet. I don't know if you want to read anything into that or not, but... Um, that's what his name means. So Tola means scarlet. Uh, Jair, his name means Jehovah enlightens. And so uh, kind of interesting name there. Jehovah enlightens, you know, reveals to you or shows you something. We know a little bit more about Jair. Now the description of him is that he has 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 towns in Gilead, which are called Jair's villages. So somebody, one guy has 30 sons who have 30 donkeys and by saying donkey, just think like Lexus, Cadillac, something like that. So it'd be like saying had 30 sons, each one of them had 30 Cadillac or had a, had a Cadillac and owned its own town, was the mayor of its own town. What would that tell you about Jair and his family? They're what? Connected. Okay. What were you saying? Wealthy. Wealthy. Is that what you were saying back there too? Okay. Yeah. So, so he is a wealthy, powerful man. Um, he is probably the uh, primary leader of Gilead. Gilead is east of the Jordan River. Uh, remember, there was uh, the two tribes that stayed on the east side of the Jordan River, but Joshua said that's fine. Uh, but you got to come in and fight with us, and then you can go back to your own your own place. And Gilead was a section of Manasseh. Um, but as Gilead grew and grew in prominence, it actually kind of became known as its own territory. It was never considered its own clan, um, but it kind of elevated itself in prominence in that region. And so um, uh, so Jair probably began as the leader of Gilead and then eventually became the judge for all Israel. And so uh, one thing that we can know, and how many of you ladies think that in one lifetime you could have 30 children, 30 sons? There's probably some daughters mixed in there too. That sounds like something that one woman could accomplish. That'd be pretty tough. I mean, what the the woman on TV? She's got what twenty one kids and counting something like that. You know she's she's been going a long time. I don't know if she could ever get to thirty. But this lady had would have either had to have thirty sons or Jair had multiple wives who provided thirty sons. And so uh, Jair is following in some of the line, some of the example of Gideon. Remember Gideon had all those sons and all those wives that he uh, that he married. And so Jair is breaking away from what the law says, what God's word says, and he is having a polygamous lifestyle. So he is living like a king. 
Remember, uh, Israel wanted to make Gideon a king. He said, no, uh, the Lord will be king over you. But then he went ahead and lived like a king, and then he named his son, my father is the king. Um, and so, uh, 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 so Jair is kind of following in that same lines. And so he had to be wealthy. Um, these individual donkeys sig- signifies people who are powerful and who belong to the ruling elite. Um, so Jair's family was definitely uh, powerful, wealthy, and connected. I like the des- that description. He was definitely a connected person. Um, so, so we can tell that he uh, had a lot of power and had a lot of sway. Uh, if he was in politics, he probably would have had a, uh, a big super PAC that could have you know, provided money for him and, and got him elected. We don't know why Tola and Jair were chosen as judges. Nothing in there says that God raised them up. Nothing says that the people just chose them. So we don't know how they became judges, um, but they ruled for uh, a total of 55 years uh, over the people, I'm sorry, 45 years over the people of Israel. Okay, and then we get to a familiar verse. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Have we heard that yet in the book of Judges? <laughs> Almost every chapter, right? Every time there's a new judge, just about, we hear that, that phrase. They worshiped the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the Philistines. They abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to the Philistines and to the Ammonites. They shattered and crushed the Israelites that year, and for 18 years they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. Israel was greatly oppressed, so they cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. We have abandoned our God and worshipped the Baals. Now let's pause right there for a moment. Verse 10. What is different about verse 10 than anything else we've seen whenever Israel cried out previously in the book of Judges? Anybody want to take a guess? They recognize their sins. They recognize their sin. No other time in the book of Judges does Israel actually acknowledge their sin. It says that they cry out to the Lord and he hears them and he raises up a judge. This is the only time where Israel actually acknowledges their, uh, acknowledges their sin. Um, and so verse 11, let's keep going. The Lord said to Israelites, when the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and uh, Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, but I did not deliver you from them. Did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worshiped other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever you're oppressed. And so he's saying, hey, look, every time you cry out to me, I deliver you, and you always go back to these other gods. So why don't you go ask them for help? Go see how that works for you. Um, you know, if, if, God had a, if, if God was the kind of God who could have an attitude and have sass, this would be attitude and sass. But I think God is just telling the truth as it is, right? He's saying, hey, you keep choosing these gods. Go pick these gods and follow after them. See if they can deliver you. Verse 15 says, The Israelites said, We have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit. Only rescue us today. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshipped the Lord, and he became weary of Israel's misery. And so not only do they, they acknowledge the Lord initially, but then whenever he says, Look, you, you're going to just keep going back to these other gods, so go ask them for help. Then they say, Okay, Lord, you're right. You're justified in what you're saying. And so here's the deal. We acknowledge our sin. We know you're God. And, but... Even if you don't deliver us, we're still going to acknowledge that. That's what they're saying. He says, we've sinned. Deal with us as you see fit. Only rescue us today. So they say, you're right. You, you give us the punishment that we deserve. 
however you see fit. We do hope that that winds up being deliverance, but you, you deal with us however you see fit. And to prove that they were truly being faithful to the God at this point, they get rid of the foreign gods among them and worship the Lord. And so unlike previous times, there's no description of them getting rid of the foreign gods. They actually get rid of the foreign gods and purify their, their homes. All right, and so then in verse 17, the Ammonites were gathered, called together and they camped in Gilead. So Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The rulers of Gilead said to one another, which man will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will, who, he will be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so they, they get together and they start saying, okay, we need a leader. So then we get introduced to Jephthah. <coughs> now Jephthah has a, a, a similar background to Abimelech. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You will have no inheritance in our father's family, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. And so he winds up looking a lot like Abimelech did last week. Remember, Abimelech was rejected by the family of Gideon, um, all by the true legitimate sons of Gideon. And um, they drove him out. And so it says that once, once he what, gathered together some money, he hired worthless fellows uh, to come with him. And they began fighting the battles with Abimelech. So Jephthah basically does the same thing. He's got all these worthless people that he kind of gathers around him, kind of just a group of rebels, a group of outcasts, maybe a group of mercenaries, and they began going on raids. Uh, verse 4, uh, sometime later the Ammonites fought against Israel. Um, when the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of, Ge- of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to him, come be our commander and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, Didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? They answered Jephthah, That's true, but now we turn to you. Come with us, fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to them, If you are bringing me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is our witness, if we don't do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander. And Jephthah re- repeated all his terms in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. Okay, so um, in chapter verse 12, we begin to get to the story of, uh, of him interacting with the Ammonites. And uh, basically, uh, Jephthah comes and he talks to the king of the Ammonites. He draws them, you know, kind of has a, a messenger back and forth uh, with them. And so the Ammonites... Uh, argument, and we're, we're going to kind of summarize this. The Ammonites' argument is that Israel lives on land that rightly belongs to them. And they say that whenever Moses came through, uh, he destroyed the, the uh, Arnon, the king of, uh, let's see, Arnon to Jabbok and the Jordan, um, that uh, whenever Israel came from Egypt, they seized all that land. And uh, now restore it peacefully is what they ask for. And so Jethro replies with uh, four different things. He says, uh, first of all, Uh, It wasn't Moses who took the land. The Lord gave the land to Israel. He also says, look, if uh, if you're griping because Israel took land from you, well, you took land from the Moabites. So you never had first claim on it anyway. So if you really want to make that your judgment, then you need to get the land back to the Moabites. So basically say you have no footing to stand on. This wasn't legally your land. It's not legally our land. Um, So if you want to make a legal claim, we have to give it back to the Moabites. He also says, if you fight us, 
You're not going to be fighting against us. You're going to be fighting against the Lord. And so he recognizes God's um, leadership and God's uh, uh, direction in, in all of this. And so um, he, he, in the midst of this, he shows that he has a knowledge of the history of Israel. He shows that he has a faith in the Lord. Um, and he also shows that he trusts that God is going gonna, is gonna to take them through this. And we'll get to some of that here in a moment. There's a lot of stuff to summarize. All right, so let's look at verse 29. Uh, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me whenever I return safely to the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. And so he crosses over. He defeats, uh, the, defeats the enemy, uh, the Ammonites. Then verse, verse 34, When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughters besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought a great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. And then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Go, he said, and he ascended her away for two months. Verse 39, At the end of two months she returned to her father, and he kept the vow he had made about her. And she had never been intimate with a man. Now it became a custom in Israel that four days each year the young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. And so a wretched vow Gilead, uh, Jephthah makes, and uh, we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. And so let's back up a little bit and talk about Jephthah, okay? So Jephthah means he opens or he sets free. And so this is what, uh, that's what his name means. He opens or he sets free. Um, his family, we've already talked about this, is he is a social and a family outcast. So his family doesn't welcome him. Israel doesn't welcome him. He has to uh, go and live in a distant land uh, that is outside the, the realm of his homeland. And so he is a family and a social outcast. Um, but Jephthah, in the end, is remembered as a man of faith. You guys were paying attention to Brother David's message this week uh, on Sunday morning. He talked about Jephthah, and it's found in Hebrews 11, verse 32 through 34. Um, the, the author says, What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. And so Jephthah, even though he makes a pretty huge mess of things and does something that we just consider abominable and even God considers abominable he's considered by the writer of Hebrews to be a man of faith and to be somebody who trusted the Lord and um, so and we know this because uh, and the reason for this is that he knows God's word and he trusts to a certain extent we're going to see this in a moment he trusts to a certain extent in God's deliverance um, and his argument to the Ammonites demonstrates this so the fact that he argues about God being sovereign over giving him the land God being the one who's going to fight the battles, the Ammonites not having a legitimate claim to the land. Uh, this shows that he knows God's word and he trusts God's word. Because as he recounts the episode of Israel coming into the land, it shows that he knows the Old Testament. He, or he knows the books of Moses because he's read them, he's studied them, and he knows the story. 
All right. So let's talk about Israel a little bit. Um, this is the most detailed description of Israel's idolatry in all the book of Judges. Um, uh, it, it spends more time talking about their uh, uh, rebellion um, and talking about the different gods that they worship than any of the other descriptions. And as we read those, we see that they have become worshipers of the conquered gods of their enemies. So they would go through and they would conquer a people, then they would live in peace for a while, and then they would turn right back around and worship the gods of the people that they conquered. Um, it talks about the ones that they, verse 6, as they worship the Baals, this is chapter 10, verse 6. They worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the god of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. So all these are people who, um, you know, at one point they had already fought and God had to give them uh, uh, victory over, yet they go right back to worshiping those very same gods. And so um, they, they turn right around and, and begin worshiping those same gods again. And so here they are under God's judgment, and initially God refuses to help them in their distress. And so God hands them over uh, once again to the, to the Ammonites, and uh, they get to rule over them again. But like we said a while ago, they repent. Israel repents. Uh, we've already mentioned this is the first and the only mention of true repentance in Judges. Um, and, uh, and so let's look at this, because there are two signs of true repentance. Okay? The first one is a sorrow for sin not just as consequences. Uh, we have to have sorrow over our sin uh, and not just its consequences. Second um, Corinthians 7.10, which is down there on your paper a little bit, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so as believers, we need to be convicted over our sin and want to have true repentance from our sin, not just because it's making our life difficult, but because we recognize that all sin is against the holy God. In Psalm chapter 51, David is writing about his sin with Bathsheba. And he says something that's pretty interesting. He says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, it's interesting because obviously he sinned against Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. But he also uh, sinned against Uriah the Hittite, who was her husband, because not, he committed adultery with his wife. And then whenever he wouldn't, couldn't trick him into uh, going to bed with Bathsheba, he sent him out to the battle and basically had him murdered in the battle so that he could take Bathsheba as his wife and try to cover up the sin. And so uh, if Uriah the Hittite could come back and talk to us, he would probably say, no, hold up. You sinned against me too, buddy. You took my wife and my life. I'm pretty sure that qualifies as sinning against me. But David recognizes that all sin is ultimately sin against God. All sin is a rebellion of a rejection of God and his sovereignty and his leadership and an enthronement of ourselves and our own desires or our own will. And so we have to have a sorrow for the fact that we have sinned, not just the fact that we are experiencing consequences. Um, and so that's the first step of, of true repentance. The next one is to have a sorrow over idolatrous, idolatrous motives not just behavioral change. And that's what we see here in Israel finally, in verse 16, chapter 10. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they worshiped the Lord, and then he became weary of Israel's misery. And so they didn't just uh, uh, get rid, they didn't just try to put some makeup on what they were doing and make it look like they were doing the right thing. They literally got rid of the things that motivated their idolatry so that they could focus on God. They took all those idols out of their house, you know, went and buried them or burned them or, you know, threw them in the trash, whatever they did. They got rid of them, and that facilitated 
their change. So they didn't just try to change their behavior so that they could convince God that they were doing things right. They did things right, and then that in turn changed their behavior. And so a lot of times we like to just kind of uh, change some things that we're doing to make it look like we are following the Lord. When in reality, we have to get rid of some habits, get rid of those things that keep dragging us back in. Otherwise, we're just going to keep getting sucked back in. We can't just uh, change our behavior. We have to change what motivates our behavior. And that's almost always some kind of idolatry, some kind of idol, whether it's an idol of selfishness or pride or uh, power or success, whatever it is that motivates our uh, sin, we have to get rid of those things. Okay? And so continuing with Israel's situation, um, God's delivery ultimately is not tied to Israel's repentance but to God's character. Um, it doesn't say because Israel repented, God raised up a judge. It doesn't say that you know because God saw uh, Israel get rid of their foreign gods, then he became weary with Israel's misery. It's just the word and he became weary of Israel's misery. So Israel got rid of their gods and God got tired of seeing them suffer is basically what it means. And so God's initiative to act is not Israel's actions. It's just the fact that God loves them. God grew weary of uh, Israel's misery. Um, he got, he, you know, he's just tired of looking at it, tired of seeing it, tired of seeing them suffer. So God's delivery is not tired to Israel's repentance. This is still motivated by his character. And the, one of the last things we see here uh, is that finally Israel has no leader, military or otherwise. And so they get together at the end of chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Uh, verse 18 says, The rulers of Gilead said to one another, Which man will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So all the leaders of the nation of Gilead get together. And they say, All right, who, which one of us is going to be the leader? And all of them are like sitting on their hands. You know, they got their hands in their pockets. They don't, they don't want to be the one out front having to go against the Ammonites. And so out of all the men of Gilead, of all the leaders of Gilead, uh, not one of them is found that can wants to rise to the occasion. Now let's just back up a little bit. Um, we don't know, I don't know if these guys are still alive. I'm just going to kind of throw this out there. So this isn't in the scripture. This is just, uh, this is just for you to, to think about. But how many sons did Jair have? He had 30, right? 30, uh, 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 towns in Gilead. Now I don't know if those guys are still alive or not. They may not, they may not be alive. But you would think that out of all those powerful elite rulers in Gilead, at least one of them, or maybe one of their sons, would have risen up and said, okay, I'll be the leader, or had maybe be shown some leadership qualities. But no, none of them, uh, none of them do. And so, you know, whether it's uh, these other sons of Jephthah who have run him out, nobody is willing to stand up and say, I'll be the leader. And so they have to go out to this rebellious guy that they had kicked out who had no family status and no social status and say, hey, will you come back and be our leader? And so there was no, Israel, no leader in Israel and there's no description of God choosing a leader. In all these other episodes, we see that God raises up a leader. And he raises up Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon um, and Shamgar. Uh, we see him actually raise those leaders up. Yet nowhere in this description... Is there any indication that God chose Jephthah? Um, so Israel, the leaders of Israel go, they find Jephthah, and they say, come rule over us. And so we, God chose to work with Israel's choice, but he did not choose the man. 
All right, so let's look at Jephthah's leadership a little bit because we do see, you know, based off Hebrews, that he is considered a man of faith. Uh, he is dealing with the Israelite leaders, mirrors Yahweh's. Uh, he requires double recognition of their submission to him. And so he says in verse 9 of chapter 11, If you are bringing me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. Um, and they say, yes, absolutely, the Lord is our witness, if we don't do as you say. So he takes them all the way back to Mizpah, and he makes them repeat that allegiance in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. And so basically, uh, he's, he's saying, we're going to go back to where we believe God's presence is, is at least has a, has a, there is a sense of his presence here at this worship site in Mizpah. And here, where God can be our witness, you're going to submit to me because I submit to God, is basically what he's saying. And so figuratively, Israel's submission to him demonstrated their submission to God. He's basically saying, look, by you following me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow God, and you're going to follow me. I'm going to be your leader. So he kind of places himself in the position of judge. They, can, they say, come be your leader. And he says, okay, I'm going to be your leader, and we're going to do all this underneath the eyes and underneath the approval of God here at Mizpah. And that kind of mirrors the situation that we're in. For us, our submission to Christ demonstrates our submission to God. Um, we are reunited in a relationship with God through our submission in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our reconciler, our advocate, who, who brings us back close to the Lord. Jephthah initially leads with wisdom and not rashness. We see here in a little while he goes a little haywire and uh, starts acting out of character, but he initially leads with wisdom. Um, God legitimizes his role as leader by giving him his spirit. Verse 29 of chapter 11 says, The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, and then he traveled from Gilead to Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. And so the spirit of the Lord comes and rests on Jephthah, just like it did with Othniel, just like it did with Gideon, and just like it will next week with Samson. So he is obviously legitimized by God's presence being uh, placed on here. But even in the midst of that, Jephthah shows one weakness and one flaw that is a huge flaw. And this is his, his vow that he makes. Now, did God ask for a vow? Did God ask for any promise? Did he ask Jephthah to do anything to prove himself to the Lord? No. Has the Lord asked any of the leaders to do something to prove themselves to him? No. He calls them. Even in the case of Gideon, he calls a scaredy cat and says, Hey, mighty warrior. You know, he, he sees who Gideon is going to be, and he calls that out in Gideon. Yet Jephthah here is trying to, uh, trying to reign in God, and he makes this, it makes this foolish vow. But God never requests nor responds to Jephthah's vow. He has no part in it. So God doesn't even acknowledge it. Jephthah says, if you will, um, uh, verse 30, If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Um, does God say, okay, sounds good? No. Does God say, no, please don't do that? No. God just ignores it. You know, he, that's just, you know, we don't, we don't, there's no indication in Scripture why, but my assumption is that God is saying, is thinking, are you nuts? <laughs> you know, have you read Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy says that this is an abomination. Please don't do this. You know, so maybe God is just ignoring that whole thing. Maybe, you know, thinking uh, Jephthah's going a little crazy or something at this point. But Jephthah makes the vow. God never uh, says no. He never acknowledges the vow. He doesn't even give it any attention. He has no part in it. 
And Jephthah's vow shows his lack of complete trust in God. And it also reveals something in his nature, which is manipulative, in dealing, uh, his manipulative dealing to gain what he needs. See, Jephthah was what? He was a worthless fellow. He was out in the, in the sticks. He was having to try to, you know, coerce people to do things his way, bring in rowdy guys around him, and then they would go raid people's villages. You know, he was a, he was a swindler. He was kind of like a mob boss. Okay, this is kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the United States getting in trouble and going and saying, hey, Al Capone, we really need some help. You know, can you come in and be our leader? You know, we, we're in a situation where we just can't do this on our own, so we need you to lead us. And so Capone, would that just make his nature change? No, he'd probably still, if he needed to coerce somebody to doing something, he'd still go, you know, threaten to break their knuckles, you know, or get their family or something like that. So Jephthah's kind of just working around the same way that he normally works. He's thinking, okay, if I can get God to accept this vow, then he has to give me what I want. And so Jephthah, his, his vow was motivated um, to try to get God to do what he wanted. And so it was motivi- motivated by the influence of his pagan culture, uh, which was consumed with paganism and violence. This is just what he was used to. Okay? He was right here in the middle of all this culture that was motivated by paganism and violence. He was also influenced by the pagan works-based system which was an understanding of appeasing a God. Uh, he was right in the middle of these cultures that offered sacrifices to appease their God, not out of allegiance or worship to their God, but just trying to make the gods happy. Uh, he was The Ammonites um, practiced uh, child sacrifice to Molech. They were one of the nations that uh, practiced that. And so he was influenced by this. So he thought, man, I'm going to offer this vow to God, and he's going to be pleased with it. Now, um, I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, uh, which is just you know, one of many translations, and it translates this in a very specific way. Um, it says, verse 31, Whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely, I will offer that person as a burnt offering. The Hebrew actually says, whatever. Whatever comes out the doors, I will offer it as a burnt, burnt offering. Um, most scholars agree. I shouldn't say most. Uh, there's a whole lot of scholars <laughs> that uh, agree that the language that he's using makes it very clear that he expected a person to be the first uh, thing that came out of the doors. For one, you didn't keep animals in your house. You know, they didn't have uh, chihuahuas and you know, shih tzus and stuff like that in their house as a pet. Uh, they didn't have animals in the house. The animals were all outside. So you wouldn't expect you know, your hog to come running out of the house first. And oh, oh, there's my hog. Guess I have to offer it as a sacrifice. What he probably expected was his servants would come out to greet him. And whichever servant came out of the door first, he would offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord. But it wound up being his daughter that came out. His one and only child came out to meet him. And so he felt uh, trapped by that. And Jephthah, in keeping his vow, demonstrates no understanding of the grace of God. Um, there is nothing in the scripture. No, God never acknowledges his 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 vow. He never acknowledges his sacrifice or this desire to sacrifice or this willingness to sacrifice his daughter um, to the Lord. Deuteronomy says that human sacrifice is an abomination to the Lord. God would never accept it. And um, for uh, for Jephthah to even offer God a acceptable sacrifice, where would he have had to have gone? He would have had to have gone to the tabernacle, right? Do you think any any reasonable or knowledgeable priest would offer a daughter on the God's altar as a sacrifice to God? No, he wouldn't have. So most likely Jephthah took his daughter out somewhere and offered her to God as a sacrifice. 
um, uh, even though that was obviously against God's will. Now, if you, if you do any studying on this, you'll see some people try to uh, work around this and say that Jephthah did not actually sacrifice his daughter, um, that he uh, basically uh, contributed uh, con- her to the Lord or said that she was the Lord's and she was never married, and that's why she mourns her virginity. Um, but most likely, I mean, if that was the case, they would just say that and um, make it pretty clear. Uh, because in the reason, the, the, the way that they leave this unsaid really makes me believe that the, the writer of the, of the text just doesn't want to address it. <laughs> uh, you know, otherwise, uh, Jephthah, they could write about the mercy of Jephthah or, you know, that God was pleased that he didn't follow through with it or something. Um, but, uh, but it makes it very clear, uh, verse 39, um, that at the end of the two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he had made about her. And so... Um, so Jephthah falls through, thinking he is trapped by his vow. Um, Ecclesiastes uh, talks about this. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, I believe it's verses 1 through 7. It says, you know, watch what you say. Don't make rash vows to the Lord. You know, keep your mouth shut. Because if you do make a vow to the Lord, you have to keep your vow. That's basically what those passages say. Um, I truly believe that if Jephthah had just fallen on his Lord and said, Lord, that was a foolish vow. Please forgive me. You know, the grace of God would have acknowledged that, would have given forgiveness in that situation, because there's nothing about the Lord that is ever going to require a human sacrifice. And what's the only place in the Scripture where God asks for a human sacrifice? Isaac. And what did God do in that situation? He provided a way out, right? Because God does not require human sacrifice. And so if this had been something that God acknowledged and that God welcomed and that God said, yes, Jephthah, you do that, you make that vow, what do you think God would have done in the moment whenever Jephthah raised that knife? I believe God would have offered a way out. And we'd be reading about that in this text rather than seeing that Jephthah fulfilled his vow. And so, um, so although Jephthah was a man of faith, he let his mouth and his pride get the best of him. And instead of just falling on his face and asking for forgiveness for his worthless vow, he kept it and uh, followed through with making this bad sacrifice. So let's see some takeaways for us, okay? Um, The first one is this. We are far more affected by culture than by the Bible, typically, and far more affected than we think. Um, Culture really does influence the way we think, the way we perceive things. Um, Our culture is a very much a works-based culture. You know, the way you get success is what? You work hard, you work hard, you work hard. Uh, you, you do whatever you got to do to get to the top, to climb the corporate, corporate ladder. Um, and that's just kind of how we, that's kind of how we, we think. Um, the way that you know somebody is a good person is because of all the things that they do, which makes sense, right? You know, if somebody is, gives a lot to poor co- you know, causes of poverty or social causes, we think, well, that's a good person. The culture takes that a step further and says, well, we know that that person did a lot of good things on earth. So since they died last week, they're obviously in heaven. You know, good people go to heaven. That's just what the culture thinks. And so we are affected by that. Um, And a lot of times our Christian morality is more affected by that than it is by the Bible. Um, I grew up in a good Baptist church. I've been raised in Baptist churches since, you know, my whole life. Um, But if you would have asked me whenever I was in high school or if I was in college, uh, I would have probably told you that if you do something bad, God's going to, you know, zap you with a lightning bolt or something. You know, that, that God sends punishment into your life. You know, Christ, if you're, even if you're a Christian, God sends punishment into your life 
um, because of the things that you do and bad things happen to you, uh, justified by God, sanctioned by God because of the things that you have done. Is that anywhere in the New Testament? No. It says that the, God will allow you to reap the consequences when he takes his hand off of you. You know, talking specifically about somebody who is living in homosexuality and will not repent from it. It says that God will take his hands off of you so that you can reap the rewards of your sin, but so that your soul can ultimately be saved. Um, so I believe that if you keep resisting God, keep resisting God, keep resisting God, yeah, he eventually just takes his hand of protection off of you and lets you reap the consequences. But God is not sitting there like with a quiver full of lightning bolts just waiting for you to mess up so he can pop you in the back of the head with one of those things. And God disciplines us because the loving Father does that. Um, but God, we, we don't have a works-based morality relationship with the Lord. We have a living by grace uh, with the Lord. That doesn't mean we can do things free grace where there's no consequences. Um, but we don't have to live in fear of the Lord. And so we're affected by culture. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this world is not supposed to mold us and shape us. God's word is supposed to mold us and shape us. And I love that word transformed. Um, literally means to be created into something, uh, taking something old and turning it into something new with a new purpose. There's two, there's two different words for, for or, I'm sorry, not the word transformed, the word renewed. There's two different words in the Greek for the word renew. One means to make something new again for its same purpose. All right, so that's like Brother Spencer's car lot over there. A lot of those cars have been renewed. They were restored to their original condition, and they had the same purpose. You get in them, and you drive really, really fast. Okay, That was the original purpose for which they were created. Um, to see something different would be like uh, whenever have you ever seen somebody have an old truck bed that they use as a trailer. You know, they take the front, they take the frame, they fold it in, they put a hitch on it. That's been renewed. Even if it's been you know, cleaned up and shined up, that's been a different renewed because it's been made new, but for a different purpose. And that's what this is. That's what this word is. We're supposed to be transfer, transformed, made new with a new purpose. And our new purpose is following the Lord and living in, under his will. All right, the next thing, takeaway for us, our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. And so um, Jephthah's, the, the most devastating thing that happened in Jephthah's life didn't happen to him. I mean, you could argue that it happened to him, but ultimately it happened to his daughter. She got sacrificed for a battle that was already his. Did he have to make that vow in order to win the battle? No, God's Spirit had already clothed Jephthah. So any reasonable reader of their text says, Oh, Ammonites better watch out. The Spirit of the Lord just came on Jephthah. And then they read Jephthah made a vow, and they're like, What? Wait, what? What did he do? The battle was already yours. Why did you do this? And so uh, his idolatry, his, his feeling like he can manipulate God or had to follow through with his vow, really had more devastating effect on his daughter than it did him, and probably on his marriage. <laughs> you know, pretty sure that he and his wife probably didn't see eye to eye um, after this. And you just think about that. For two months, he had an opportunity to change his mind for two months as she was out mourning her virginity. Um, so our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. Um, you know, whenever we uh, pursue all the successes of the world, those things don't come without a cost. You know, if, if being number one in your career is the ultimate thing, uh, that's going to come with a cost. It's going to have a cost for your family. It may have a cost with your integrity. Um, uh, sometimes people say, uh, you need to be true to yourself. 
you know, we might celebrate somebody who is a, a uh, you know, a, just say, for example, there's a pastor of a big major church, and he comes out and he says, really, I'm a homosexual. I've been a homosexual. I've known I was a homosexual for, for 10 years, and I've just never had the courage to come out. But now I come out, and, and I know it's going to cost me my family. It's going to cost me my kids. It's going to cost me my ministry. It's going to cost the reputation of my church and of Christianity. Uh, what, what would happen if he went on to Oprah and was telling her this story? What would she say? She'd say, well, you've got to be true to yourself. You know, we can't hold you back. You've got to be the man that you, that you really are. But that would cost him, that would devastate his family, it would devastate his church, devastate his marriage. It would devastate, it would leave a trail of destruction. But our culture says, be true to yourself. You can be whatever you want to be. And it doesn't matter what the costs are, you've got to do it. And so our idolatry can have devastating effects on those around us. Um, third thing, God's people often struggle to believe in and depend on God's grace. Uh, this is the whole story of the letter to the Galatians. Um, Paul is writing to the Galatians, and <clears throat> what's interesting, if you read the book of Galatians and compare it to other letters, usually Paul says, writes a letter, and he says, you know, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to uh, the Ephesians, I love you, I'm so proud of you, you're doing such a great job. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he says, hey, my name is Paul. What the heck are you doing? What are you thinking? Who has bewitched you and made you think that once you were saved by grace, now you're trying to keep your grace, keep your salvation by good works. And so he jumps right into the throats of the Galatians and starts kind of shaking them around a little bit. But he really, he could kind of jump in our face and shake us around a little bit too. Now that you were saved by grace, why are you trying to maintain your salvation by running yourself ragged, serving at the church, by uh, religiously uh, studying the word every single day, not because of relationship, but because you think you have to do it in order to please me. Um, you know, why are you, uh, you know, why are you doing these things out of have-tos rather than out of relationship? And so we often struggle even now to think and depend on God's grace. We think, I've got to live a good life for God to accept me. Even though we've already been accepted, we've already been changed, if I don't live a perfect life, God won't accept me. Um, yet God never says that. Whenever you, whenever he looks at you, he sees you covered by the grace of Christ covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he accepts you as you are. What I like to say is he accepts you exactly how you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. And so he's always working to make you better, always working to make you more like Christ. But ultimately, you will never look like Christ until when? Until you stop living here and start living with Christ in eternity. That's when we'll look like Christ. And so we have to depend on God's grace. Our works add nothing to what God has already done. The last thing we see is that we need a better judge. And thankfully, we have one. His name is Jesus Christ. First John 2, 1-2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Aren't we glad that our judge is perfect, that he never makes a mistake, that he always leads us in the right direction? Um, that, is the, that is the definition of our judge. And our judge is Jesus Christ. And so we have a better judge who serves now as our advocate and our representative to the Father. And so he fought our battle for us. He won the battle for us. The battle over our enemy has already been won. All we have to do is rest in the peace that he brings. We talked about a couple weeks ago how the last mention of peace um, is after Gideon. From that point on, the text never says anything else about Israel having rest or living with peace in the book of Judges. Thankfully, we have 
a judge who offers us peace, and that peace will last forever. Jesus said uh, that he gives us peace. Um, as he was leaving earth, he says, my peace I give to you. And so we can rest in that, rest in that peace. And so, um, you know, the, the thing that we can see here in Jephthah is that he lived by faith. He trusted the Lord. But we've got to make sure that we don't let the world creep in and taint the way that we live by faith in the Lord. We need to live by faith according to what the scripture says, not according to what pop culture says, not according to what the latest book in Lifeway says. Um, you'd be surprised if you read some of those books with really dis- discerning eyes, how moralistic a lot of the Christian literature is. You know, it says live by faith by doing this, 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 and this, you know, and it's, it's very works-based writing. And so we have to be discerning even in the books that we read um, that we don't let uh, grace get pushed out by works-based religiosity now that we are believers. And so hopefully this will be an encouragement to you and, and a challenge, um, but just to know that we can live by faith. Uh, we just have to make sure that we continue trusting in God's grace rather than trusting in other things. All right.